Church, I invite you this morning to open with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, in just a moment, I'll begin reading there in verse 2. Acts chapter 17, and I'll begin reading in just a moment from verse 2. And we're going to study together uh, the first 15 verses of Acts chapter 17. Now, if you've been with us the last several weeks, you know this is a much smaller passage of Scripture that we're tackling together today. And I am relieved by that. Uh, the last couple weeks, we have covered a lot of ground in the book of Acts. And our time together has been good. It's been efficient, I pray. Uh, but this morning, we're going to slow down just a little bit and cover just the first 15 verses of Acts chapter 17. You know, I live in a house with five kids. I've got two dogs, two cats, and there are something like, uh, the last I counted, 14 chickens out back. We had two rabbits, but they ran away. They ran for the li their lives, uh, bless their hearts. They have not returned. Um, needless to say, peace for Sheree and I in our chaotic house can seem elusive at times. I mean, there's a lot going on. I mean, there's either a dog barking, a kid screaming, a chicken or rooster crowing out back. I mean, there's a lot going on. And the, the problem is with trying to find peace is when you need to get some things done that require some quiet. I mean, studying and reading books and writing papers for school, all that requires some quiet. And doing homework for the kids requires some quiet. And there's a problem with that because, you see, my favorite place in our entire house is right in the middle of all of the chaos. I love my recliner. And those of you that have been to my house, you know there is a specific spot on our sectional sofa that I like to sit in. And it is right in the middle of all the chaos. It's so comfortable, and I can't move it to my bedroom to a quieter place. So it's right there in the middle of all the madness. And this is a problem. So I like to read my books there. I like to enjoy my morning coffee there. I like to write my papers for school there. Well, Christmas time this past year, Cherie got me the most wonderful gift that I think I've ever received. She got me these magical little things called noise-canceling earbuds. And, and they, were, they were quite pricey. It was the only gift I received for Christmas, in fact, because of their price tag. And I was a little skeptical at first until the first time I put them in my ears and I squeezed that little earbud and it clicked and everything went quiet. I mean, kids were running around, and, and dogs were barking, and I didn't know. I was none the wiser. Now, I want to be clear about something, because Cherie would not tell you this, but I'm going to make sure you hear this. Cherie bought those for me. I didn't buy those for myself, so yes, sometimes I even am able to cancel her out and the sound that she has, right? But she got them for me, so that's not on me. That's on her. But nonetheless, I got these magical things called earbuds. And listen, peace is no longer elusive. Quiet is no longer fleeting. No, I can get a lot of things done when I put those in my ears. Well, listen, as I studied this week, I once again saw some missionaries who were in the middle of some chaos and difficulty, a church that was in the throes of persecution, and the church was threatening to break up, it would seem. But they held together in the middle of all that madness. In fact, they didn't just hold together, but they advanced the kingdom despite all those things. And it was because they had something special as well. They were holding on to the treasure of the gospel. You see, the gospel, despite all of the chaos around them, it gave them peace. It gave them a sense of hope. 
a sense of purpose, a sense of security. And here's where I want to challenge you this morning. That peace and that hope is available to us as well. In a very chaotic world, in the middle of great difficulty, we can have peace because of the gospel. If you're taking notes this morning, I encourage you to write this down. Though the world may be troubled by the gospel, the gospel gives us good reasons to be at peace. Before we look at the passage, I want to ask you a question. I want you to ponder this throughout our time together today. In the middle of the sometimes maddening world we live in, are you at peace? In the middle of difficulty, are you still at peace? In the middle of, it seems like at times your life might break apart, are you at peace? Because the promise of the gospel is you should be at peace. I invite you to stand with me and honor the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 2, and I'm just going to read down to verse 7. As usual, Luke begins. He says, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks as well as a number of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city, attacking Jason's house. They searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too, and Jason has welcomed them. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this true and accurate record we have of your church and the things you have done through your church, through your great missionaries and your great servants. God, I pray this morning we will be encouraged to have peace just as they had peace. Lord, that this peace would come through the gospel. Those who are far from you, God, I pray that through the power of your word, your spirit blessing our time together, you would draw them closer to yourselves. I pray that all of us are challenged and encouraged. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Before we look close at these three reasons that the gospel should give us peace. I want to draw your attention to verse 6 once again. Look back there in the text. It's a key verse. It's right in the middle of our passage, and it's one that I alluded to last week. I want you to see the accusation that was leveled against the missionaries. Look carefully. They were shouting, it says, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Now, some have taken that statement and said, you know, we need to be encouraged to turn the world upside down ourselves. And, and that could be an application for sure. 
But here, here's what I want you to understand. These men, these missionaries, they were not the ones turning the world upside down. That's where the accusation is flawed. The gospel was turning the world upside down. You see this phrase, turning the world upside down, this is an exaggeration. They weren't literally doing that, of course, and the gospel was not literally doing that as well. This phrase means that they were causing a lot of trouble. In other words, the world was being troubled by the gospel. That's where we get this main idea for us this morning. There's two different crowds in the passage, and they couldn't be more different. There's one crowd that's troubled by the gospel, and then there are the servants of God, and they're at peace because of the gospel. And this morning, I say this to you with great compassion and care. There are two different groups in this room as well. And every church across the face of this planet that is meeting this morning, there are two different groups. You ready? There are those who are troubled by the gospel. And there are those who are at peace because of the gospel. And my hope this morning as we make our way through these 15 verses, that every person in this room, before they leave here this morning, has that peace because of the gospel. First of all, notice this. The gospel gives us hope. The gospel gives us hope. Look back with, with me again at verses 2 and 3. I want you to see what is happening there. It says that Paul went into the synagogue in verse 2, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead. I want you to see three ways that this gospel gives us hope. First of all, our Savior's suffering was foretold. Our Savior's savior suffering, it was prophesied about in scripture. I want you to see where Paul there, he's explaining and reasoning with them. It says, from the scriptures. That's key to our understanding. You see, the scriptures at that time wouldn't have contained the New Testament just yet. Understand, this is just a few years after Jesus had been crucified and resurrected from the dead. The church was just being born. So they didn't have the letters that we read from Paul to the churches. They didn't have the book of Revelation where John had written this letter to the seven churches. Listen, they had the Old Testament. That's what he was saying here. He's saying, listen, let me take the Old Testament. Let me show to these people why it was necessary that Jesus would suffer. So we need to understand what he's doing here. Perhaps you could write down these scriptures this morning that pointed to a suffering Savior, and they were perfectly fulfilled, every single one of them. Perhaps he was talking to them that day about Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 6. Isaiah 50 and verse 6. Isaiah is prophesying here. He says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. You see, you look back at the Gospels, you don't have to look far into the passion narrative to see this happening to our Savior. Word for word, this prophecy being fulfilled in the person of Jesus Something written hundreds of years before Christ ever was born, and yet it was perfectly fulfilled in our suffering Savior. But notice this also, Psalm 22 and verse 18. Write that one down, Psalm 22 and verse 18. The psalmist writes, They divided my clothes among them, and they cast lots for my garment. 
Perhaps you remember this as our Savior was crucified and hanging there on the cross. It says that the soldiers gathered at the foot of that cross and they were dividing his garments among themselves. They were casting lots for them, if you will. Again, a perfect fulfillment of what was written hundreds of years before in the Psalms. Isaiah 53 and verse 5, this is perhaps the most prominent passage of Scripture pointing to our suffering Savior. Listen carefully. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. You see, again, a perfect fulfillment of prophecy. If there are any of you in this, the room this morning who play the lottery, I say that carefully, how many numbers right does it take to win the grand prize? Anybody remember? Anybody know? Be careful. No one's going to answer that question, right? That was a joke. That was a trick for you. Listen, five or six, right? I don't know. Five or six numbers. You got to get them all right in order to win the grand prize. Now, if you win the lottery, that is incredible, right? I mean, everybody, you're going to get your name in the newspaper, on the news, all this kind of stuff. You've won the grand prize. Everybody in Cave Spring is going to be knocking on your door. Y'all know this is true. But what if the very next week you won the lottery again? Very quickly, someone's going to say, this person's a criminal, right? Something is up. Nobody wins the lottery twice in a row. No one beats the odds, so to speak, and makes that happen. Listen, I want you to understand this. When we look at Scripture and we see every single fulfilled prophecy in the person of Jesus, it's those kind of odds that are being beaten. It's incredible to understand how Jesus fulfilled in every way what the Scriptures proclaimed about him hundreds of years before. That's what Paul was doing here. He was reasoning with them from the scriptures. He was saying to the Jews there, he said, listen, this doesn't happen by chance. This is, something's happening here. God is at work and he is fulfilling every single prophecy. But now notice what Paul also reasons. He says, our Savior's suffering was not just foretold, it was necessary. It was necessary. Maybe you caught this back in verse 3. He says in verse 3 there, he says, it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead. Listen, only Christ could pay the price for the penalty of our sin. Only Jesus could do that. Listen, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 23. He says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. I want to draw your attention to why this would have been a stumbling block to the Jews, first of all. Understand that the crowd that Paul was preaching to here in Acts 17, they were looking for a very different Messiah. They did not want a suffering Messiah. They wanted a victorious Messiah, right? They were living in Roman bondage. They wanted deliverance from that physical bondage. Instead, they received a suffering servant that offered deliverance from a different type of spiritual bondage. You see, they did... They did not see their spiritual captivity. They only saw their physical captivity. Why was that? You see, the Jews, we've seen this again and again, they were trusting in some sort of self-righteousness. That if somehow they could hold it all together and keep all the rules, they would earn God's favor. And what Paul was telling them here was he was saying, listen, you need the suffering Savior. You need this Messiah. And yes, you need to be saved from your sins and your wickedness. 
Paul clearly understood this, and he wanted them to see this. If you're ever going to experience salvation, you have to first know that you need salvation. Perhaps this morning as you sit in this room, you struggle with that. You say, well, I have some talents, and I have skills, and I do good things, and my good outweighs my bad, and you, you reason to yourself, you don't need a Savior. I say this to you as Paul was saying it here in Acts 17, it is necessary that Jesus suffered on your behalf. You need a Savior, just like the people here did that day. Finally, note this, our Savior's suffering, it was also sufficient. Look back with me at verse 4. It says there that some of them were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas, including a number of God-fearing Greeks as well as a number of the leading women. I want you to see how they were persuaded. There wasn't a miracle performed that day. There was no argument that was won. There wasn't a sign given or a voice that spoke from heaven. No, the word of God was proclaimed and they were persuaded. You see, the declaration of a suffering Savior was sufficient to save both those who were seekers, right? There's that group called God-fearers. We saw that last week. A God-fearer is one who is seeking something. They recognize that there is someone greater than themselves, and so it was sufficient to save them, but also some of the religious crowd was saved as well. There's an implication here. I want you to see the diversity of all of those listed there. It says some were persuaded, and then it lists out. There were the God-fearers, then it makes the note there, as well as some of the leading and prominent women among the crowd. There's diversity in that crowd, and here's what we need to understand. You and I may be different in just about every way imaginable. We might come from a different place. We have different families. We look different. We talk a little bit different. We work different jobs. We have different goals and ambitions. But our common need for a Savior places us on equal footing. Listen to this. Every person in this room lives in the shadow of a bloody cross. Every person in this room lives in the shadow of a dark and empty tomb. We can be as different from one another as daylight and dark. But because we live in the shadow of that cross, we are the same because we need the same suffering Savior. This idea of a common bond leads us into verses 5 through 9. The gospel gives us peace for a second reason. It holds us together. It holds us together. It keeps us in community with one another. I want you to see that picture of chaos that ensued by the time we get to verse 5. It says, but the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace. This, this group of wicked men, these were people in the marketplace who really didn't have a dog in this hunt. They weren't religious, they weren't pagan, they were just kind of in between, and they were kind of the hired guns, so to speak, of this situation. So they brought them together, they formed a mob, it says, again, a word of chaos, and they started a riot in the city, it says attacking Jason's house. All of these words, in an escalating sort of way, communicating chaos in this situation. Now, chaos can make us uncomfortable, but also we can be bound together in the middle of that chaos 
And that's what we see happening here. You know, those of you who have a military background, this isn't that strange to you. The battlefield can be a place of chaos, can it not? I mean, the bullets are flying, the bombs are going off. The, the troops are spread out across a great swath of land. And it seems like there's no order to the madness. And yet, if you were to take a bird's eye view of the entire situation, you would see in the middle of that chaos, everyone marching together in one common direction towards one common goal, despite the chaos. We can be held together by the gospel in a similar way, despite the madness. First of all, notice this. We have a common purpose. Jason is mentioned here and only here in the New Testament. I wish there was more I could tell you about him. In fact, when I was studying, anytime a proper name pops up, I highlight that and circle it and say, I need to learn more about this person. Well, that's what I did. And I looked as far as I could look in every Bible dictionary I could find, and this is the only place that Jason is mentioned. In fact, it was a very common name, kind of like John in the New Testament. And yet, he's only mentioned here, but he played an important role. Don't miss this. His part was no less significant. He did not preach a sermon or perform a miracle. He made himself available to the mission of God. You see, what happens here is that the missionaries are being persecuted. There are some headhunters out to get them. There's a riot in the streets. And what Jason does is he harbors these supposed fugitives in his own home. You see, he was a part of the mission. He understood he had a role to play. He didn't give a great speech or make a great argument, but yet he had a role to play. Church, every person in this room has a part to play. Every person in this room is united around a common purpose. I want you to replay our worship service this morning just for a moment. I want you to think about how everything that happened, someone played a purpose. Someone had a role in every part. There were some of you at the beginning of this morning, you taught Sunday school. You used the gift that God had given you to prepare and study a lesson and then share that with the people before you. You were using your giftedness to serve a common purpose. Some of you in the room this morning, you served as greeters today. And you stood out front in, in the doorway and as people came in, you greeted them with a smile and you handed a bulletin to them and, and you used your gift of hospitality to serve them, to serve the church and to welcome people who were visitors this morning and they knew they were welcomed here because of your presence. Some of you this morning, you stood in the choir and you sang. If you're like me, you stood on the front row or somewhere in the room and you made a joyful noise to the Lord. But you used your giftedness you used your giftedness to serve the Lord. Others of you prayed this morning. You took part in public prayer before the family of God. And yes, you were using your gift to lead the congregation in that time. Listen, everybody has a gift they've been given. And we use that, united around a common purpose. For Jason here, we know nothing else about him. But we know that he understood he had a purpose. He was united in that purpose with our missionaries. But the gospel also holds us together in a second way. It's not just a common purpose. We also have a common king. Notice the accusation leveled against our missionaries in verses 6 and 7. It says in verse 6, we saw this a moment ago. We highlighted this. They had turned the world upside down. That's the accusation. But as we get to verse 7, the accusation is clarified. It says, and Jason has welcomed them, they say, 
And they are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now, we have to understand the context of what's happening here to understand the accusation being made and why it was a big deal. You see, in Roman culture, Caesar was in charge. And Caesar, by those in that time, were, he was looked at as a sort of god. He was on this level playing field with the gods. He was a big deal. And so, if you questioned his authority in ways that that culture saw it, you were questioning one of the gods. And so that's the accusation made here against Jason and against these missionaries. They were questioning the authority of Caesar, the authority of the gods. Listen, Christ is our king, and that unites us under his authority. Christ is our common king. In Mark, in Mark chapter 5 and verses 1 through 5, you have this exchange between Pilate and Jesus. And Pilate is questioning Jesus. He's saying, they're saying you're the king of the Jews. Is that who you say you are? And he replies in a sort of terse way. I love this. He says, well, so you say that I am. Or just as you say that I am, he says. Again, the big deal, the, the thing that eventually led Jesus to the cross in that culture was the fact that he had somehow usurped the authority of Caesar through his declaration as king of the Jews. You know, authority unites us in unique ways, in other unique ways as well. In our families, the, the parents are what kind of hold things together. They unite us in that family. And if anybody steps out of those bounds, it can seem a little bit strange and a little bit odd. Let me share an illustration with you. I didn't ask my brother if I could share this, so He'll listen to this later, and he might call me and say, why in the world did you share that story with them? My family, we grew up, they raised us in a very small, independent Baptist church. I mean, we're talking like independent Baptist church where preachers were yelling, right? And good old southern gospel music. I loved my upbringing. I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. But I also remember this. You were never supposed to run in church, right? You know this. Even now, you shouldn't run in church. My kids... I have to get on to him every once in a while. But I remember my brother, he's seven years younger than me. He was a bit of a wild man. And he, one day, was running through the church. And my mom saw him, but she couldn't catch up with him. But there was a deacon standing at the back door. Not a part of my family, not related to us in any way. And he, in one motion, scooped my brother up with one arm, swatted him on the rear end, and set him back down. And my brother just stared at him, stunned and silent at what had just happened. Why? Because that wasn't his daddy, and that wasn't his mama. It was out of place. It seemed a bit strange. The person in authority had been displaced in his life. It seemed odd. It seemed bizarre because mom and daddy weren't the ones spanking him. Listen, authority matters in our lives. It matters in our families. It matters in our workplaces. It matters in the church. And guess what? It matters in the kingdom of God. It matters. And, and listen, when they were proclaiming that Jesus was their king, it caused chaos in the culture around them. We've seen that the gospel is what gives us peace. We've also seen how the gospel gives us peace. It unites us around a common king and a common purpose. But finally, and perhaps most importantly, we need to see why the gospel gives us peace. And that's answered in this last truth. 
The gospel changes lives. That's the big why. That's the reason we have peace. It's for the mission of God. It's not just to give us the warm and fuzzies inside. No, the gospel gives us peace so that we can go on the mission in peace and be effective for the glory of God. Look first at verses 10 through 12. They move on to a new place. Again, moving from this place of chaos. And they run, and it says in the middle of the night, in fact, in verse 10, it says, as soon as it was nighttime, which means in secret they were fleeing, the brothers and sisters, they sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Upon arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. The people here, listen to this, were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Verse 12. Consequently, many of them believed. Many of them believed. You see, the the crowds in verses 10 and 11 and 12 could not be more different than the crowd we saw back up in verses 1, 2, and 3. Let me show you how that's so. Look there in verse 11. You see, in this new place, the people, it says, were daily examining the scriptures. Did you see that? Daily, they were examining the scriptures. But before, back up in verse 2, if you look back with me, you see there the people in Thessalonica, they met with Paul on three different Sabbaths, it says. Three different days, three unique days they met with him. And we don't even know if those were consecutive Sundays or not. In other words, three days were given in Thessalonica. And yet these people daily were pouring over the scriptures. Notice this again. The people in this new place, they were eagerly, it says, examining the scriptures. Here's what this means. They were looking at their lives in light of God's word. They were looking at God's word and saying, what does this inform me about myself? That's this word examine. That's what it really means. And yet, when you look back up in verses two and three, we see a crowd that is passively receiving the word of God. You see the labors of Paul before that crowd, and he's It says he's explaining and he's reasoning. You can see that it's his effort that's happening. And the people are passively receiving it. Instead of being discouraged by that previous encounter, they were encouraged to keep going. And I believe there are two reasons why. And we can be encouraged in the same way. There are people waiting to hear the gospel. There are people waiting to hear the gospel. I remember growing up in church and we would go out on weekly visitation, knocking on doors in our community. And our pastor and my dad and and maybe one deacon or so, and I would tag along as a young man and they would take us and we would knock on the doors in the community. Churches don't do that as often anymore, but I remember very vividly those occasions. I remember the rejection at so many, right? You knock on the door, they answer the door and they slam the door in your face. And guess what? You kept going to the next one anyway. Why? Because you hoped there was someone eager to hear the gospel in that next home. And on so many occasions, we saw that happen. Listen, church, there is a world waiting to hear the gospel. There's a community anxious to listen to these very words. We press forward into this mission just as these missionaries did here because we believe that. Finally, there are people waiting to live on mission. 
You see, it's not that they're waiting just to hear the gospel. They're waiting to be a part of a community, to be a part of a mission that will unite them around a common purpose. People love a sense of belonging. And listen, as we are united under the shadow of the cross and the grace of Jesus, we have all that in common. I want you to see what happens in verses 13 through 15. It says, but when the Jews from Thessalonica, they found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and upsetting the crowds. And don't read past this too quickly. Then the brothers and sisters immediately sent Paul. Did you catch that? The brothers and sisters were a part of the mission. You see, there's a transition that happens there in verses 10, 11, and 12 that gets you to this point in verses 13, 14, and 15. You see, it says they had believed and they had, they had eagerly examined the word of God. They had received the gospel with anxiousness. And then they're called brothers and sisters. Do you see the transformational power of the gospel? These people were now a part of the mission of God. We saw this happen previously just last week. As the jailer was transformed, remember? The very person who had put Paul and Silas in chains. By the time you get to the end of that passage of Scripture, this jailer is washing their wounds. Listen, there's a transformation that happened in his life, and the same transformation is available to a lost and dying world. We live in a broken world that perpetually lives in chaos, it would seem. Surrounded by madness. But peace is available to us because of the gospel. We read this passage at the beginning of our time together this morning. John chapter 14 and verse 27. Jesus says this, remember. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. I want to ask you that question I asked about 30 minutes ago. Are you at peace this morning? I mean really at peace. Not a momentary and fleeting sort of peace that is here while you're in this room and then gone as you leave the church this morning. No, a peace that never ends. A peace that is never exhausted. First of all, if you're a child of God, you should have that peace. That peace, let it renew in your heart this morning. Understand that you don't have to be afraid in the world we live in because of the gospel. It has changed your life forever, and it can give you that peace forever. But also, there are those of you in this room this morning who have never trusted in Christ. You've searched for peace in every way imaginable. You've looked for peace in so many different places. You've told yourself again and again that you're okay and you don't need this gospel. The truth of God's word is every person needs the gospel. Every person. That is what unites us together is that common need for Jesus. Whether it's a murderer on death row or a saint, they need the gospel. I encourage you to respond to that gospel this morning as we close our time together, I invite you to respond. There's a card in the pew back in front of you. Fill that card out. It's going to be completely discreet. You can drop it in the offering plate as you leave this morning. Let me know about the decision you want to make. I would love to reach out to you 
and walk you through how you can respond to this gospel. Or you got my phone number right there in the back of the bulletin. Give me a call. Let me know. I would love to walk with you through how you can respond to this gospel that can change your life and give you peace.